How many of you, and I think the youth are in today, so this is uh, going to date me a little bit. How many of you remember wrestling? Now I'm talking real wrestling. Yeah, like I'm not talking about WWE or WWF. I'm talking about Saturday afternoon wrestling, ITV. Giant hairstacks, Big Daddy. Yeah, used to be the highlight of my Saturday. Used to, to be glued to the television as you shouted, easy, easy, easy. And uh, these beasts, you know, they, there was Jan Haystacks, there was Big Daddy. Who remembers Big Daddy's real name? Shirley Crabtree, not that intimidating. Okay, you're going into the ring against Shirley today. Uh, Big Shirls. Um, you know, he actually made the Guinness Book of Records with a 64-inch chest. Jan Haystacks was 49 stone. The bizarre thing is, actually, they both died within about 11 months of each other uh, back in the, the 90s. Then there were a few others. Mick McManus, Kendo Nagasaki. They all had these names that were designed to instill fear into you. Well, we're looking at a giant. We've been looking at a giant. And if he had a wrestling name, I was thinking of what it would be. It would be the Mass of Brass. The Mass of Brass. Goliath stepping onto the battlefield. Here on the right-hand corner, we have the Mass of Brass. And uh, all the Philistines are cheering and all the Israelites are running off. Because that's what happened for 40 days and for 40 nights. We have these two uh, Armies lined up on either side with a valley in between. And every day and every night for 40 days, Goliath comes out and he taunts them and he shouts abuse at them. And the Israelites are terrified and intimidated and they do nothing. And I don't know what they thought. Maybe they thought, well, in day 41, he'll get bored and go home. There are some enemies you have to fight. There are some things that won't go away unless you confront them. And on day 40, David gets called in by his dad. And dad says, David, I want you to go down and see your brothers. Three of your brothers are down at the battle lines. I want you to bring them some bread. I want you to bring them some cheese. That sounds like pizza to me. And, uh, and, and I want you just to see how they are doing. Now, it would have been very tempted for David to go, Dad, did you not remember what happened a few weeks ago? Remember Samuel? Remember the, the, the oil on the head? Uh, I'm, I'm a future king. <laughs> I'm not the sort of messenger boy that runs down to the field to do the messages. And yet, that wasn't his heart. That wasn't his attitude. He was humble and he was obedient. And he did the menial and the mundane tasks. You know, David wasn't looking for a fight. David wasn't even looking to get noticed. David wasn't trying to usurp Saul as king. David was just being obedient to the Father in the ordinary and the mundane. And ordinary obedience in the mundane and the monotonous can lead to life-changing moments. Most of the significant moments of your life aren't announced in advance. There's no commentator in the background or no narrator telling you that next week things are going to happen, something significant, you're going to have a conversation that's going to change your life, or, or something's going to happen. It's in the faithfulness in the small. It says you're just going about your daily life, serving Jesus, loving people in the ordinary and the mundane and the everyday that God steps in and does something incredible. And David was sent there for one reason, and that was to bring food to his brothers. But God had him there for a different reason. Because God had anointed him for kingship. 
And how, while he was a shepherd boy in the wilderness, the jump from there to kingship was too big. God needed David to get noticed. And so the timing of God is impeccable. He sends David just at the moment when the giant is coming out. David was too young to fight in the army, so God needed to get him to the battle line some other way. And I want to say to you, you're never too young and you're never too old. The youth are in here today. One of my key verses throughout my youth was this, from 2 Timothy. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in love and life and faith and speech and in purity. Young people, we need you to be an example to us. We need you to show us life, love, speech, faith and purity. Don't let anyone look down on you. You're never too young and you're never too old to be used by God. And God strategically places David right in the right place at the right time. He doesn't have to manipulate. He doesn't have to jockey for position. He doesn't have to cajole. He doesn't have to maneuver. God can get you where he needs you to be when he wants you to be there. God has this ability to put you in the right place at the right time. And often we think we have just stumbled into life-changing moments when God has actually placed us there. And so he's there to deliver bread, but God has a bigger purpose, and that is to defeat the giant, to get noticed, to be seen not just as a shepherd, but as a potential king. Don't miss the thing that gets you to the thing that gets you to where God wants you to be. Sometimes, and what I mean is this, sometimes you think you're in a place for one reason. David thought he was there just to deliver bread and cheese, but God had a completely different purpose for him. You might think, I'm just doing my job. I'm just in the office. I'm just on the sports team. I'm just this. I'm just doing that. And that might be what you're just doing, but maybe God has a much greater purpose in that place for you. Maybe there's something you don't see there yet. And maybe you need to ask God, God, I know I'm here just, you know, maybe you're just doing your job because you need money. And that's okay. But maybe God has a greater purpose. Maybe there's someone in your office that he wants you to impact. Maybe there's somebody on the factory floor who's going through a hard time right now and he wants you to touch their lives. God puts us in places and we think it's for one reason when actually there's a whole other reason. I was thinking about, we've taken on, in the last few months, Hannah O'Neill is our youth and children's pastor, and she's doing a great job. That all came about because last summer I was asked to, to speak at New Wine to do a few seminars. And I, I said I'd go down for a few days, and we stayed one night. And the second morning, I was walking from the coffee area to a seminar. Hannah happened to be walking that way. I hadn't seen her the whole conference. She was down doing the children's work. I said, hi, Hannah, how are you doing? Not too bad. You still in Calvin? You're still in Calvin. Are you finishing up soon? Eh, I might be finishing up next year. Let's have a conversation. And now she's our youth and children's worker. I thought I'd gone there just to do a few seminars. She thought there she'd gone there just to do a bit of children's work. But God had something else in that. And don't miss the thing that's not always obvious. Because sometimes God is at work in deeper ways and in ways that you can't immediately see. And I love that David was reliable and trustworthy. He was obedient to his father. But also says this. He says he left his sheep, he left his flock in the care of a shepherd. He didn't just leave them on their own. He was faithful in the small things. He was faithful in the small things. And we're going to see that again later. When you're faithful in the small things, God can trust you with the bigger things. That's always been the way his kingdom has worked. 
Let's keep reading verses 21 to 26. He reached the camp as the army was going out into its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Now, they were in battle positions, but they weren't having battles. Just because you've got a position doesn't actually mean much if you're not doing anything with it. If you've got a title, you've got a position, you've got some role, unless you're actually utilizing it. These guys are dressed for battle. They've got the uniform, they've polished the armor, they've got the nice boots on, but they're not actually doing anything with it. Positions don't mean anything unless you're actually doing something with the position. And they're shouting the war cry. The Israelites, every morning, they're coming out and they're creating this big song and dancing. It's like the New Zealand All Blacks coming out every, you know, to the rugby game and doing the haka. <laughs> and then they run off into the changing rooms crying and nothing happens. That's kind of what was going on here. They were doing this song and dance and making a lot of noise, but actually not doing anything. Sometimes the loudest people are the most insecure. And sometimes the quietest people are the most confident. Because as we're going to see in a minute, up until this point, David hasn't said a word. Noise does not equal confidence. And for 40 days and for 40 nights, the giant had come out. That's 80 times. Behavior will be repeated until it's confronted. If there's something in your life or someone in your life and you don't like how they're behaving towards you or towards somebody else, you can ignore that, but don't expect it to go away. Because what we don't confront just gets repeated. And there's some times when we just need to go, that's not right. I'm not having that anymore. I need to talk to you about this. Because I'm not going to watch this for 41 days. I've watched it for 40 days, and that's enough. What You get what you tolerate sometimes in life. And they were facing each other. The two sides were facing each other. In other words, they could see what was wrong. They could see the enemy. There's a difference between facing a problem and facing a problem. Facing a problem is just looking at it, describing it, knowing the problems there. Facing the problem is doing something about it. Many of us know things in our lives that aren't right. There's things we want to change. And yet nothing changes until you do something. So David goes to the battle lines. He goes to his brothers. And Goliath comes out and David hears it for the first time. Look at verses 26, 27. David asked the man standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes the disgrace from Israel? What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel. Well, we'd already been told what would be done. Do you see this man who keeps coming out, it said earlier? The king will give him great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and exempt him from taxes in Israel. Great wealth, exempt from taxes, and daughter in marriage. That's what would be done. Now, every man in this place is probably thinking the same question. Which daughter? Have you got a photo? Because maybe he had two or three daughters. And one was, and one was, and and you know, if you're going to risk your life, you want the, okay. I said in the first service, we won't put that in the podcast, but it's there in the second one now. So, uh, 
If you're going to risk your life, but you know, reality is you're not going to marry her if you're dead anyway. So uh, is it really worth the risk? I'm not sure any girl's worth that risk right now. But David asked, what will be done? And they told him. And they repeated to him, this is what will be done. This is the first time David speaks, verse 26. In all of the Bible, we don't have a word from David before that. David wasn't someone who needed to shout about how great he was. But when the, there's some people when they speak, what they say is worth listening to. And David asks really this, is this battle worth fighting? What's the reward? And that's something we need to ask ourselves when we face battles. Is it actually worth fighting? Like even if I win this battle, is it worth winning? Because you know what? You can win a battle but lose the war. And there are so many times I've fought battles that weren't worth fighting. And I've lost the war. Some battles you need to walk away from. There's nothing worthwhile to be gained. There's some battles that just drain you emotionally, cause massive fallout and damage relationships. And so what I've learned to do sometimes is to hold off just a day or two. When somebody does something that annoys you, when somebody confronts you with something, when someone offends you, rather than rushing straight in with the battle, all guns blazing, why not just step back for a day or two and settle down? And it's amazing how 24 to 48 hours can change your perspective on things. And you go, thank goodness I didn't run into that battle because there was nothing on the other side of it that was worth fighting for. But in this case, what was at stake? What was at stake? It was the glory of Israel and the glory of God. You see, then there's some battles that are worth fighting. If it's just about your ego and pride, it's not worth fighting. Like if you do something to me and if you say something to me, you know what, I might get annoyed, but I'm not going to take it too much. But you do something against my family, I've got problems. You do something to disrupt and bring toxic culture into this church, we've got a problem because God has called me as a shepherd to protect the sheep in this church. There's some battles that you don't fight and there's some battles that are worth fighting. And I, we, we talked about this last week. If you've got a diagnosis, you need to fight. If your son or daughter is, is going through, if they're uh, rebellious and, 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 and they're 14 years old and they're involved in all sorts, you need to fight for that child. If your marriage has fallen apart and there's no intimacy and no love, you need to fight. But there's some things that you don't need to fight for and some things that you go, I need to confront this. I need to deal with it. David asked, what will be done? What will be given to the man who's willing to fight this guy? Do you know what? There's a degree of self-interest here. Like we tend to think of David as just completely, totally pure-hearted and everything. And ultimately for him, yes, it was about the glory of God, but there was also something in it for him. And what I want to say is this, and I want you to hear this the right way. Most of us, if not all of us, ever do anything out of 100% pure motives. Because we're human. And the heart is deceitful above all things. There's normally something in it for us. And you know what? That's okay. Sometimes I have people come to me and they go, I would love to serve here, I would love to do that, but I'm afraid it's just me wanting to do it. Maybe you wanting to do it is a sign that God created you to do it. You know, we've had this mentality in Northern Ireland for so long. Don't tell God where you don't want to go as a missionary because that's where he'll send you there, you know? 
Like, don't tell him you don't want to go to Outer Mongolia because that's exactly, you'll be on a plane in Outer Mongolia next week. Like, we sing he's a good, good father, and then the way sometimes we think about him is the opposite. He wired you. He made you. Psalm 139 says he formed you in your mother's womb with passions, desires, and abilities. And he wants to utilize those in the best place at the best time. So why would he send you somewhere where you're going to be wasted? We have a good God. And he wants to use the gifts and the personality that he has given us. Ultimately, yes, it's for God's glory. Ultimately, yes, it's for God's name. But ultimately, also, you might get something from it. If you're a businessman or woman, you want to run your business for God's glory. But you also want to make decent money. And you know what? That's brilliant. Make all you can. Give all you can. If you're a parent, you want to be a good parent. You want to be the best parent. You want to be a great parent. Do it all for the glory of God. If you're in sports, I want you to be the best sports person you can be. I want you to get as good at that sport as you can be but do it all for the glory of God. There's nothing wrong with desiring greatness, folks. There's nothing wrong with desiring greatness as long as ultimately your greatness points to him and not to yourself. Success in the kingdom is this. Success in the kingdom is fulfilling the purpose God created you for. If God created you to be a great teacher, don't be an average teacher. If God created you to be a great mom, don't be an average mom. If God created you to be a great postman, be the best, smiliest, happiest postman you can be. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be great, as long as ultimately the greatness points to the great God you love and serve. Let's keep going. Verse 28. When Eliab, David's older brother, heard him speaking, with the man. He burned with anger against him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You only came down to watch the battle. What battle? Uh, Now what have I done? said David. Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the man answered him the same as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul. And Saul sent for him. Criticism. We've all been criticized at some point in our life, some more than others. And there's different types of criticism and there's different sources of criticism. Do you know what the most difficult source of criticism is? People close to you. See, if a random stranger walks in here and, and tears me to shreds, honestly, I really don't care. We've got bouncers, they'll throw them out. Um, I really don't care. But if somebody I love, somebody I trust, somebody I respect, someone who I look up to criticizes me, it gets me to the core. And none of us likes criticism. There's nobody who wakes up in the morning and goes, I would really love a good dose of criticism today. I'd love somebody just to walk into work and turn me to shreds by half nine this morning. We hate criticism. And no matter how confident you look on the outside, no matter how much like Teflon you look, like things just don't stick, they do. Criticism affects us in here. It brings out all our insecurities. It causes us to become passive. It causes us to pull back. And none of us likes criticism. But often the greatest sources of criticism can be from those closest to us. Those we love. 
those we trust, those we have poured our lives into, those who we thought we would do life with forever, and they betray us and they say stuff about us and it can leave us devastated. In this case, where did the criticism come from? It came from David's oldest brother, the big brother who should have been looking after him. His name was Eliab. Have we come across Eliab before anywhere? Remember when Samuel goes to Jesse's house to anoint one of the sons? He isn't told which son it is. Who's the first son that comes along? Eliab. And Samuel looks at him and goes, surely this must be the Lord's anointed. And I'm sure Eliab thought, surely I must be the Lord's anointed. And yet, he wasn't anointed. I wonder, I just wonder, is the anger that he is now displaying towards David a carry-on from what happened back there? that there's been resentment and offense and bitterness festering in Eliab's heart. And this is the first time he's had a chance to express it. Because really, what had David done here that was so wrong? What do we read about David that seems worthy of this criticism? Absolutely nothing. You know, sometimes the only thing you need to do for people to dislike you is breathe. That's it. You just need to exist. You just need to be you. That is all it takes. Because the problem isn't you. It's them. It's unresolved issues in their heart, but you just happen to be the one who's in front of them that's maybe triggered something. His anger would have been much better directed at the right place, and that was a real enemy called Goliath. You see, when you aren't fighting the battles that God has called you to fight, you will fight battles that God has never called you to fight. When the church isn't fighting the battles that the church is called to fight, we turn inwards and fight each other. We fight our brothers and sisters. Instead of fighting the real enemy, the devil, we turn on each other. When the church isn't on a mission to reach the lost, we end up fighting amongst each other. When the church isn't on a mission to bring God's light and God's kingdom into our community, we start fighting with each other. When we, when we aren't doing what God has called us to do, we end up taking it out on each other. It builds up. And I want to say this, and I felt that I was to say this this morning. Wives here, girlfriends, whatever you are, sometimes your husband isn't angry and frustrated at you and the kids. He's angry and frustrated at himself. Or his job. And you just happen to be in the firing line. Some of you need to hear that. As men, if our job isn't going well, or if things aren't going well, we don't take it out on our job. We take it out at home. And so wives, some of you need to hear that this morning, that the anger and the frustration, it looks like it's directed towards you, but it's nothing to do with you. You just happen to be there. And your husband loves you, and he thinks the world of you but you just happen to be there and he needs to deal with some stuff in his own heart. Because there's an anger and frustration and a disappointment and all of that that is built up within him and you're just in the firing line of it. Sometimes the issue isn't really the issue. Let's break down what Eliab says here to David. Let's break it down. First thing he says is this. Why have you come here, David? Why had David come there? One, because the father had sent him, and two, to serve his brothers. 
He was there to bring them food. He was there to bring them bread and cheese. He was there to serve them. Sometimes you can do all the right things with all the right motives and still be criticized. You can serve people. You can love people. You can pour into people. You can give them your all. And six months later, they say, he did nothing to help me. She did nothing to help me. They were useless to me. And you've given everything to them. But some people, you will never meet their expectations because their expectations are completely unrealistic. Sometimes you will give all, but you'll still be criticized. Second thing he says is this. With whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? He patronizes him. He puts him down. He makes him feel small and insignificant and worthless. You're just the wee shepherd boy who we get out of the way looking after a few sheep. You're a nobody. That's how he related to his wee brother. You know, some people can only relate to your history, not to your destiny. Do you ever meet people who you went to school with? And all they can talk about is who you were 20 years ago, not who you are today. And you have changed, and you have grown, and maybe in between you've found Jesus, and you've matured, and everything is different about you, but they can still relate to you back then, especially the longer they've known you. Sometimes your parents do that, folks. Sometimes your parents still treat you like you're 11 years old, and they don't realize that you have changed a lot. Some people will only relate to you according to your past and not what God has done in the present and what he's going to do in the future. But like Jesus, remember Jesus goes to his hometown. He says it's not just the son of Joseph and Mary and we're not even sure if he's Joseph's son after all. And it says that they dishonored him and he could only do a few miracles there and he left because they were over familiar with him. They could only relate to him according to his history, not to his destiny. In a sense, you are who you were, but you're not who you were. At the core, you're still you, but God has done something so much more in you. But they just can't relate to that because they are still who they were back then. You've grown, you've changed, you've developed, you've matured, but they can't get past your past. And then look at the next thing Eliab says. I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. I know how conceited you are. Is there anything about David so far that makes him sound conceited? Because I can't find anything. Sometimes we label people with the wrong things just because we want to see them that way. And it becomes personal here. It moves from what he has done to who he is. And you know, if you criticize something I do, that's one thing. But if you start to criticize my character, my motives, that's a different thing. It's the same with you. If you do an okay job and somebody says, that was all right, that's okay. But if they start saying you're a lazy, good for nothing, and you never do anything right, you're unreliable, that stings more. A number of years ago, when I first, probably my first year in Dublin, I was asked to speak in a prison at a Christmas service to 150 sex offenders. And I took the opportunity because I wanted to share the gospel. And what their expectation was and what I did must have been very different. They expected some nice, be soft, you know, we're all fine. We're all going to heaven. It doesn't matter what you do. And I gave them just the gospel the way I would give to I don't care if they're prisoners or not prisoners. You know, I would have preached it in a free peak church, the same message. You know what I mean? 
Like, I would have said, God loves you. He created you. You're sinners. You're stained. Jesus died for your sin. His blood takes it away. You need Jesus. That was it. The prisoners loved it. But I got a letter from the assistant chaplain the following week. Three pages tearing me to shreds. How dare you tell them they're sinners who need Jesus? You just heap more shame on them. You just... And, and guilt on them. You know why they're guilty? Because they're guilty. <laughs> they're guilty. Not just, they're not just guilty because they're in jail. They're guilty because they're sinners. Because unless you're in Christ, you're guilty. But Christ came to take our guilt. That's what I was trying to tell them. But I, it, it started off about the message that it spoke, but then it got personal about me. And I started talking about my motives and about my heart. And, and honestly, it really stung. And it began to make me question everything I'd said. It began to make me question how much I should preach the gospel. And maybe, and all of that. Because criticism gets you to the core. It gets you at your most insecure place. And you might think that it hasn't affected you, but it goes round and round and round your head. Do you know 99 people can say something positive to you and one person criticizes you and that's what you focus on. It's just the way we are. And that really discouraged me because it had attacked my personality. It had attacked my, my character. It had attacked my motives. What does he attack here? What does Eliab attack? He attacks David's heart. He says this, I know how wicked your heart is. What was the thing that God loved most about David? His only person in the whole Bible, God says, he is a man after my own heart. Sometimes the enemy, very often the enemy will go attack the thing that God loves most about you. The thing that God wants to use most about you. The place that God wants you to be most effective, that's where the enemy will focus his attack. And that makes sense because that's the greatest threat to his dark kingdom. He will attack your marriage because he wants you to be a man and woman who model Christian marriage. He will attack you in work because he wants you to be a businessman or woman who shows how you can do business with integrity and honor and respecting your, your, your staff. He will attack you as a parent because every single parent sometimes feels like they're the worst parent in the world. Maybe that's just me. Every parent at some stage feels like I am ruining my child. Like my child will need counselling because of me. Because you've raised your voice to them. Because they've just driven you to the edge. And they know just what buttons to push. And you feel like you're the worst parent in the world. And you get all this condemnation and guilt. And maybe it's because God has sent you. I want you to raise sons and daughters who point their lives to me. Who are glorifying to me. And who show the world that there's another way to live. He'll attack you in, 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 in the places that he wants to use you most. In your creativity, in your ability to lead and serve, and how you care for people, in your generosity. I know people who have the gift of generosity, but the problem with people with gifts of generosity is people will take advantage of you. And therefore you pull back. And God has given you the gift of generosity. But there will also be an enemy come against that to try to stop you giving because people will have taken advantage of you. He will attack your mind because God wants to use your mind to think his thoughts, to come up with creative ideas that are going to impact the world. 
And then look at what he says, the last thing. He only came down here to watch the battle. He attacks his motives. And the question is, what battle? There was no battle. I love David's response. He doesn't cry. He doesn't sulk. He doesn't go into a corner. He doesn't run home to daddy. He doesn't get mad. He doesn't call a bunch of people over and, you know, and, and try to start get, to get people to join his side like we do sometimes when people attack us. We try to get people and say, he said that about me. What do you think? Because you better agree with me. He doesn't do that. He just turns around and walks away. How different history would have been if in that moment David would have picked up a stone, taken out a sling, and struck Eliab on the forehead and knocked him down and killed him. History would have been completely different. But he didn't. He just turned around and walked away. And there are some times you just need to walk away. There are some battles not worth fighting. You will waste your time, you will waste your emotions, and you will waste your energy and you will get nothing in return. He just walked away. He turned around. He didn't react. He didn't respond. And how many times I wish I hadn't reacted and responded. As I look back even on my ministry, how many times I got an email at 11 o'clock at night and I started typing another email and I sent it and I wake up the next morning and I try to figure out a way to get that email back before they can read it. Have you ever done that? Or a text message, you send a text message and then you're like, oh, I shouldn't have sent that. And you press every button on your phone to try and get it back and it always goes through. And 99% of the time your network's not working, but that 1% of the time it goes right through to them. How many times I wish I hadn't responded when I've been provoked by something that's annoyed me because it's damaged my pride, it's damaged my ego. I feel like I have to get back at them. And if it only waited one day, if it only slept on it, how different things would be and how much I would have avoided hassle in that relationship. Can I encourage you that you don't have to respond to every text message? Just because you get an email doesn't mean you have to immediately hit reply. Just because you get a Facebook Messenger message or you see something on Facebook, you don't have to comment. There are some battles that you're just better walking away from. And there's some things that you're better just deleting. I had somebody this week try to add me on Facebook. I deleted them six months ago because every time I posted, they just wanted to have an argument. And I thought, I cannot be bothered with this. So I'm not going to add them as a friend this time. If you're watching this, you know who you are. Anyway, I was going to say what, what political party he is a member of, but I won't. Um, he just turned away. He doesn't let it phase him. He just turns away. He doesn't fight with his brother. And often in church we fight with our brothers and sisters instead of the real enemy. You can't always choose who will attack you, but you can choose who you will respond to. People will attack you. People will criticize you. People will say things about you. Even if your motives are perfect, even if your motives are pure, they will still do that. You do not have to respond. Do you know what I've learned? God is my vindicator. And I can say that with as much confidence as I can say anything. Because there have been times when things were said about me. I've been betrayed. Things have been done to me. And everything within me wanted to go around everyone and tell them the truth. And God said, don't you say a word. 
And I look back a few years later and I see God vindicated me. And things didn't go so well for them. God is big enough to vindicate you. You do not need to vindicate yourself in every battle. There are times when you need to speak up, yes. There are times when you need to respond. But there's also a lot of the time when it's just your pride and your ego. Listen to the voice of the Lord and say, God, is this one for me or for you? And if it's for you, do it. If it's for him, leave it with him. He'll sort it out. Does David look weak? No. It is not weakness not to fight every battle. Sometimes it takes much greater strength to walk away from a battle than it does to fight it. Because David isn't focused on his brother. David's focused on who the real enemy is. He ignores those who are doing nothing to face up the real enemy who's doing something. Because what you'll find is the people who criticize most are mostly the people who are doing nothing. People who have time to think about critical stuff all day normally aren't busy serving God in the kingdom. They're normally busy sitting around doing nothing. Watching EastEnders, Cornelius Street, Emmerdale, and Celebrity Love Island. Um, but seriously, if you have no desire to change it, you have no right to criticize it. If you're not doing anything to change it, don't criticize it. And the thing is this, if you're ever going to do anything significant, different, new, for God, you will be criticized. You just need to accept that. The only people who aren't criticized are people who do nothing. You do anything different. You do anything new. You raise your head above the parapet even just a wee bit and you become a target. But you know what? I would rather do what God has called me to do and be criticized than to hide away in obscurity and do nothing and have everybody love me. And David was willing to be criticized. He doesn't care because he's focused on who the real enemy is. The real enemy is a big oaf called Goliath. How do we deal with criticism? There's three questions I ask myself, and then I want to get on. I'm going to finish. Yeah. Three minutes, give me. Dealing with criticism. Three questions I ask myself. Where did it come from? Where did it come from? Some people are just nasty and negative. Some people that no matter what you do, they will find fault with it. Some people feel like they have an opinion on everything. They're not people that you need to pay a lot of heed to. Where did it come from? And then some people are good people. They're positive people. They're the people you should listen to. Secondly, how was it given? Was it an email? Was it an anonymous letter? Was it tearing you to shreds in front of a bunch of other people? Or was it somebody putting their arm around you and saying... I'd love to go for a coffee with you in a chat. Because how criticism is given has a huge impact on how you receive it. And finally, why was it given? Why was it given? Was it given to build you up and encourage you and support you, or was it given to tear you down? You know, when I started in Lurgan and Shankill 13 years ago, I preached one Sunday morning. And I used an illustration that I'd heard other preachers use, and it had been funny, and da 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 And two wee women at the end of the service came up to me and they said, Craig, we loved your sermon this morning, but that story we found unhelpful. We just, we didn't think it added to the sermon. And at the time it stung a little bit, because it does. But I went home and I thought about it, and I thought about those two women. And they had been nothing but supportive of me the whole way through my ministry. They'd been nothing but encouraging. And so I decided this, if that story's not helpful, I will never use that again. And I never have used it again. 
I'm sure I've said much worse things, but I've never used that one again. Why? Because here's what you can do with critics. You can turn your critics into coaches. If you receive criticism from people who love you, if they do it in the right way, and their heart is for you, you can take that on board, and God can use that to make you a greater person. He can use that to make you more effective. Turn your critics into coaches. David wasn't focused on his brother because he was focused on the giant because the real question to him was this. It wasn't how big is the giant, it was how big is your God. Look at what he says in verse 26. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? I dare you to try and get that into a conversation this week. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? This is verse 26. Verses 1 to 25, we do not have one mention of God. 25 verses and Yahweh is not mentioned once. Goliath is mentioned over and over again in great detail. God, not once. These are God's people. These are his children. These are the people he brought into the land and yet they have forgotten their God. They have a Goliath-saturated mind. David arrives on the scene and he has a God-saturated mind. And he says, who does this guy think he is that he should defy the armies of the living God? God is more living than that big guy over there. And he doesn't focus on how big the giant is. He focuses on how big his God is. Everybody else is looking at, the Goli- at Goliath and thinking, look how big he is. How can I beat him? And David's looking at him and going, look how big that forehead is. How can I miss him? Because it's how you see your giant. It's the lens. Two people can see the same thing but see it completely differently. If you see it through <coughs> giant glasses, where you're focused on the negative, that's all you'll focus on. If you see it through God's glasses, with the greatness of God, and the holiness of God, and the nature of God, and that is why we need to read this book. We need to constantly remind ourselves who God is and what he has done. If you see those giants through God's glasses, that giant becomes a puny dwarf. It's all about perspective. And David says, I'll take him, and we'll get to that next week. I feel like if you're all waiting for the, the fight. I know you are. We're four week, three weeks in, but we'll get there. You know, last week, last Sunday, in a church in West Virginia, there was a fire. I was reading about it this week. And uh, the church was completely burnt to the ground. Look at it. Everything inside that church was completely destroyed. It has to be knocked down and be rebuilt. Some of you might have seen this this week, but there was one thing that wasn't, two things actually that weren't destroyed. The Bibles and the crosses. Look at the next slide. Every single bit of wood and material in that church was ravaged by flames, but the Bibles weren't even scorched. And this is the fire department's Facebook page. I went on it last night to have a look at it. This is the fire department's Facebook page. Not the church's Facebook page, the fire department's Facebook page. Look at what they write. On March the 3rd, that's last Sunday, around 12.58 a.m., our department was dispatched to assist the other fire department with a structure fire at the Freedom Ministries Church. The odds were against us. God was not. (laughs) I love that. 
Picture this. A building so hot that at one point in time, firefighters had to back out. In your mind, everything should be burnt. Ashes. Not a single Bible was burnt and not a single cross was harmed. And not a single firefighter was hurt. Prayers for the pastor and the congregation. <laughs> you know what? The question isn't, is how big, isn't how big your giant is. It's how big your God is. Your giant may be big, but I want to tell you your God is bigger. Your giant may be great, but your God is greater. Your giant may be powerful, but your God and my God is more powerful. Your giant might be strong, but your God and my God is stronger. And if God is for you, who can be against you?